This is Stories of Strength by MuscleTech, personal and inspirational tales that redefine strength. Welcome to another episode of Stories of Strength, a podcast where we share personal and inspirational tales of redefined strength. I'm your host, Jay Cardello, and on the show today, I am speaking with an incredible woman whose love of space and adventure has led her down a path of breaking barriers and inspiring others. With us today is retired United States Air Force Colonel Meryl Tangestall, the first and only black female YouTube pilot in American history. Meryl, th- thank you so much for being on the show. It's an honor to have you. But first off, I just want to say thank you so much for the service to our country and also to our society. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. You were the first and only African-American female YouTube pilot in United States history. But first, let's take a step back. Can you tell us about what initially inspired your love of flying and adventure? So for me, I watched a lot of Star Trek. <laughs> I was just a sci-fi nut, but Star Trek was my main staple of interest. And at seven years old, I decided that I was going to be an astronaut and explore space, the final frontier. Wow. Now you grew up in the Bronx. What was your childhood like? You know, my childhood, it was good. Single parent household. My mother and father split up when I was around seven, eight years old. And growing up in the Bronx in a place called Co-op City, I was the type of person that liked to play a lot of sports and hang out with the boys and get like rough and tumble. So, you know, growing up in the 70s, yes, I was born in 71. So people are doing the math now. (laughs) I will say that wasn't the social norms. So, you know, I got teased a lot for just being me. Now, what sports did you play as a child? Oh, man. Kickball. Kickball is great. Yeah. Handball, of course basketball. When I got to junior high school, I started running track. I was more of a field event person. So shot put, discus, and javelin were my events that I did well in or excelled in. And then uh, I have been bowling since the age of five, believe it or not. Bowling? Wow. So uh, my mom and I, uh, we were a bowling family. Growing up, she was probably on two, three leagues, did tournaments. And then I did a league on Saturdays with the kids. So Man, I bowl for a long time. Oh, that is great. That's great. Now, I'm, I'm from New York City, so I know handball very well. I see it playing all the time, so it's very big here in New York City. What what part? Uh, New York, Manhattan. Manhattan, okay. Yeah, most people don't know, like, they're like, why handball? I'm like, because you couldn't afford a racket. I mean- It's so let's be, true. <laughs> let's be real. <laughs> it's so true. That's it's. We call it tennis on our hands or tennis against the wall as we played. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, when was the moment you first knew you wanted to enlist? Well, joined the military because I, I went in as an officer, so I got commissioned. Mm-hmm. When did I know? When I actually probably late stage high school, going into college, there's two ways I could be a pilot. So when I wanted to be an astronaut at seven, I said, okay, basic framework. So I got to do well in math and science. I probably have to go to college because people in Starfleet go to Starfleet Academy. At that point, as you get older, you realize that you don't quite necessarily have the financial means to just go get a pilot's license because it costs a couple thousand dollars to do so. So the military was my better option. And I decided that probably, I don't know, junior, senior year that I would go that route. So Did you do ROTC as well in, in college? I did ROTC for two years. I did, actually, I did Air Force ROTC. And 
we'll talk about it later, I think. But in my book, I, I say Air Force ROTC was not impressive to me at the time. <laughs> and it's kind of funny how it came full circle. So I ended up getting commissioned in the Navy going to officer candidate school. Okay. Now, you first started out flying Seahawk helicopters in the Navy. How did you transition to flying the Dragon Lady, nickname for the U-2? So after I flew helicopters, I did that for about four years after getting winged in 96. And then I became an instructor in the T-6. The T-6 aircraft was new aircraft that both the Navy and the Air Force were purchasing to train students. So I was one of four Navy instructors at an Air Force base, at Moody Air Force Base, training Air Force and Navy students. At the end of my time there, I was actually going to resign my commission in the Navy and go back to college. And my boss at the time said, hey, Merrill, why don't you come to the Air Force and fly, you know, maybe F-117s, U-2s, you know, B-2s, B-52s. There's a couple of programs that you can actually do an inter-service transfer. My now husband mentioned the U-2s. I started looking into the U-2 program and I saw what they did. I actually liked the mission, the community of people. I actually flew out there in a T-6 and met some of the pilots out there. And I kind of liked the community. It's a small community. It was a small brotherhood, sisterhood of pilots. At that time, there was probably less than 900 pilots. And I said, oh, let me go fly to U-2. And then I did the process that requires what's called an inter-service transfer request. And I applied to the Air Force and a lot of it's administrative paperwork, but the Air Force declined me at first, but I got picked up for a U-2 interview. To be part of the U-2 or to be part of the community, you actually have to do an interview process, which takes two weeks. What is the training process like to become a U-2 pilot? Like I said, it's a two-week interview. The first week is you actually speak to uh, some of the commanders, other pilots. You do a suit check because we fly in a pressure suit, aka spacesuit. The second week, if you pass, I guess, the requirements, they'll take you on a flight for three flights and you have to actually fly the aircraft and land it. At the end of the third flight, if they determine that you are trainable, they'll ask you, they'll hire you onto the YouTube program and you'll pick a date and you'll come in. So that's what I did. I got hired. It was probably a couple of months later when I got to the program. You basically, the first seven flights are with an instructor. And you just do a lot of landings because landing in the U-2 is probably one of the most challenging things to do. So that's what they focus on. And on your eighth flight, you solo. And then after that, you start doing what's called high flights. You'll get in the suit. You'll fly high. You'll learn the basic part of the mission. Once you complete that, you do a final check ride. And then you go into what's called the mission qualification phase, where you actually learn how to employ the aircraft in operations and locations. Now, how is it like from flying other aircrafts? What is it like? The U-2 is just just a little bit different. One thing is the pressure suit is the main difference, right? So every other aircraft I was in, you're in a, in a flight suit. The pressure suit, it's a space suit, helmet. The purpose of the pressure suit is two functions. One, to provide 100% oxygen to the pilot because we're flying above altitudes, above 50,000 feet. The other reason is that the suit, if we depressurize, if the cockpit depressurizes at altitude, above 63,000, the suit will inflate to keep your body at an altitude of 35,000 feet. Now, it must be so peaceful up there. It is peaceful. It is quiet. You can hear yourself breathing because you're basically in a pressure suit. You have a fishbowl over your head. It's incredibly peaceful. The view is incredible, especially at nighttime or in sunrise or sunset. I mean, 
you know, at 20,000 feet or 3,000 feet, you have a lot of light that comes from cities that you're at. So lighting pollution could be a factor for seeing stuff in the sky. But when you're up that high, you don't have that issue. So, I mean, you see an infinite number of stars. It's serene. It's um, it's very peaceful. You must have seen some beautiful sunrises and sunsets. Absolutely. Especially over when we were doing OEF, OIF, I thought a lot of the sunrises and sunsets were, were very beautiful. When I flew out here in Southern California, it was very nice as well. Now, we know a lot about, or what we people assume to know a lot about from like, you know, flying with Top Gun and stuff. Did you have a call name? And if so, what was your call name and how would you obtain it? I really never had a call sign. I had a couple that didn't really stick. When I was flying helicopters, they would call me Frosty because I had gotten severe frostbite during training. That didn't stick. When I started flying the U-2s, they would try to like call me Slider. Didn't stick. When I did my first deployment in Korea, they called me Habu which is a poisonous Korean snake, that didn't really stick very well. Even Teflon doesn't stick. Nothing. Teflon. No call signs. I'm just Meryl. <laughs> I like that one. I like that. Now, with all the places you've traveled, is there one deployment or event that sticks out in your mind? One deployment that sticks out in my mind. In my naval deployments, there were a couple of places we went. We went to Tortola, the British Virgin Islands, for a workup cycle. So for those who don't know, when you're flying with the Navy... Before we go out on deployment, we do what's called workup cycles. So we do training exercises and practice before we actually go out for months on end. And one of our stops was in Tortola. So what I liked about that was that my grandmother was born there, so I had never been to that country. And it was pretty cool. At that time, I was an aircraft commander in helicopters. And so the young lady I was with, she was my helicopter second pilot. We had met some folks in the bar that worked on this 92-footer boat. So they took us out the next day. We had a great day snorkeling, doing some fun stuff, and just hanging out with some of the locals there. It was just kind of cool being on the island that my grandmother was born at. So for me, that was cool. And I would think the other time is, you know, South America in the Navy. So my second deployment, we did an independent operations called UNITAS, which is a deployment all the way around South America. And just to go to Colombia, just to go to Ecuador, Peru, I thought it was beautiful. I love those countries. And for me, being in the military or just going out and living life and seeing how other people live, I mean, that's huge. So I really enjoyed seeing the culture, seeing people. I remember going to Panama. And when we got there, man, I didn't realize the African influence there. So people were my complexion. I'm like, oh, I'm home. Like, I was pretty happy. It was like, it's not like being in Europe. I was like, oh, this is awesome. <laughs> I felt incredibly comfortable in Panama. So I was like, my people are here. <laughs> and then, you know, you go to Argentina and you see a lot of European influences. So you see people speaking Spanish with red hair and green eyes. I mean, that was that was amazing too. So, Oh, that's great. That is so great. I like that. My people. <laughs> <laughs> Now, an interesting thing is I noticed a lot of when I was speaking to in our podcasting with pilots, the calmness. How do you stay calm while coordinating with ground forces being overhead? Well, you can't freak out. I mean, you think about it, the guys on the ground are probably under a lot more duress than you are. Yeah. And you're flying above, so you can't, you know, you're not going to talk to them like, you know, you're all frazzled. If you're calm, they're calm. Even if they're not calm, if they need information for you and you're trying to get that to them, 
You just take a deep breath and you say, okay, I'll see what I do. And you just work as meticulously and as quick as possible to get that information to them and relay the information that is required. I always say you guys are like the angels or the big brothers in the sky, big sisters in the sky. So it's, uh, it's amazing what you guys do. Absolutely. I mean, having people on the ground that are in direct contact with forces or enemy forces, I mean, that's, that's the biggest stressor. And if you ever talk to any of them, a good friend of mine, his name is JC. I mean, he was in Iraq and, and the things that he had to deal with. I'm just glad to be part of that solution for him or for any other troop that's down there because they see some things that are um, incredibly terrible and incredibly terrifying. So to be that person above to help them, it's an honor to do that for them. Yeah. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how, how the truly elite like yourself are so humble. Where does that humility come from? I think that comes from, one, when you're in the aircraft and you get your butt kicked and your butt handed to you one day when you're flying, especially in the U-2. I mean, the U-2, I've seen people with 2,000 hours make mistakes like it's their first day. So you learn not to overestimate your capabilities or underestimate the aircraft's capability to kill you quicker than anything if you do not put the correct inputs in. So you always have to be in that moment and you cannot be complacent and you can't be cocky about it and you can't say, well, I've done this before, so today should be easy. No, I mean, the following day, maybe the wind conditions have changed. The aircraft you're flying may be different. Maybe there's a problem with the aircraft. So you just can't take that stuff for granted. Once you get your teeth kicked in a couple of times and you realize, oh, okay, this is not a game. Or when you see some of your peers that maybe have been on the wrong side and didn't make it out, that humbles you a lot. Yeah, it must. Now, the U-2 first flew in 1955 in the same year that the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott and civil rights movement began. How do you feel about being the first African-American woman to pilot such a prestigious aircraft? It feels great. Going to that program, I wanted to fly the U-2 because I enjoyed the mission that it did, what it was capable of, and the fact that it was a pressure suit, spacesuit going above 70,000 feet. And that was something that I always wanted to do. And when I sold in the aircraft, it was 2005. So it's 50 years after the U-2 is, you know, has been out and flying. And Kelly Johnson designed it under the CIA. I, I did not realize it until someone told me. You know, it's great to, I guess, be part of that history, even though that wasn't my goal. I just hope that as long as the U-2 flies, one day I will not be the only one. And there will be someone else who will say, ah, oh, this is something interesting to do. Let me go do it. But the community is small, the community is tight. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Did you run into any kind of adversity while working your way up? So <laughs> I always think about this question because it's not as simple. The answer is yes, but what kind? It, it's more nuanced than anything. So I could say, yeah, I've, I faced adversity. Anyone who wants to be the best or do something that's not the ordinary is going to face some type of adversity, right? So even growing up, you know, kids made fun of me and I think I had a little bit of a low self-esteem about who I was and being made fun of because, you know, you're a tomboy, you're not doing what you're supposed to do in the construct of society, you know, and all I wanted to do was be myself. Or when I go to pilot training and the Navy at the time is trying to, you know, recruit as many minorities into the aviation field. When you're out there flying or being with a sim person, maybe they look at you and they say, well, you're here because of a quota push. And that puts that dark cloud over your head. 
And it took for me, my instructor who taught me how to fly to say, look, people will think a lot of things when you walk into a room. They may think you're here because of you're black, you're female, whatever. He said, but if you continue to perform like you have as a flight student, eventually they can't say any of those things. They'll say you're here because you're that good. So I had to take that with me for everything. So I had to take that through as a pilot, as a a future leader. I just had to put my best game forward all the time and perform to the best through any type of adversity, whether it was someone who didn't like me because of who I was, and it didn't matter if it was a black female or whatever, or just because we had a personality difference, they didn't like me. And if they were senior to me, it's my problem, right? It's not theirs. But I still have to perform and make sure they can't question my performance. Yes, I have I've faced some adversity. What type? All types. Why? Because of who I am. And how did I get around that? Sometimes I had people in my corner who understood the situation, who understood my talents and my worth and helped me. Other times my talents got me through. And then other times I made good decisions and tried to either fix the problem or elevate it to the right person or just talk to the right people. So it's very important as you are doing something in life to have people who are in your corner, have mentors who understand you, who are helping you. And sometimes that'll alleviate some of that friction that is caused, you know, when you have those moments of adversity. Did you have any female mentors or anybody who inspired you to get into the field? I've always had mentors since junior high school. So I've had one mentor. Most of them were educators. One Lainey Miss Harriet gave me a lot of Star Trek books because she was a Star Trek fan. So that fed into my reading habit. You know, when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, I read a lot. I had a science teacher who was a mentor to me, who guided me. I had mentors in college. One professor who said, you're going to apply for this program in the summer and do research in electrical engineering. I've had mentors in the military, whether in the Air Force, the first person that comes to mind is, she's retired now, but Stacy Harris, who retired as a three-star, but I met her as a one-star when I was in the Air Force, and she was a mentor to me. To another three-star who was General Shanahan, who mentored me later on in my career when I got picked up for colonel. I've had another friend who helped me during my Navy career when I faced some adversity to actually uh, get me the job flying T-6s. So throughout my life, I've had mentors who have been able to help me and guide me. And I do the same for those who I mentor. You know, I always say, if you're not mentoring, you're doing something wrong. So regardless on, you know, I've had a lot of people help me and that has made me say, okay, who can I help? Who can I guide through? So I do a lot of that either through the internet, through talking to people on podcasts, to however I could do it, however I can help, I will. It's so true because I still to this day have a mentor for business, for fitness, just someone I can not only look up to, but someone that I can just always have at the, I would say your greatest strengths are arm's length. And it's always interesting, you know, when you have someone that you can always reach out to with a, not even a problem or for a solution, but just to run something past. So mentors are very imperative. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's just so many and having that good sounding board, and most people think, hey, you were a colonel, you didn't need a mentor. I'm like, absolutely. You always have to remember, you have to take care of yourself as well as others. So you have to, because you want to keep going up and you pull those people up with you. I think for me, for mentorship, what I also learned is that 
you don't have to have a mentor that looks like you. Yes. Mentors are people who walk in the same direction as you or who see that talent in you. It doesn't have to be a black female because in the pilot community, there's not many of us. So you have to lean on those people who may not look like you, but who are like-minded, who are compassionate and want to help you and help guide you and bring you up and not tear you down. Yeah, you remind me of an interesting quote. We're the average of the five people we hang out with the most. It's so true. Having a mentor, it raises your average. So it's so true. You bring up a very good point. Now, last year, you put out your inspiring memoir, Shatter the Sky. What inspired you to put the pen to paper and share your story? And what was that process like? So what inspired me was interviewing for the show Tough as Nails, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. A couple of years prior, I had a few friends that were getting on me. You need to write your book, write a book, write a book. And I'm like, ah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And it wasn't until I got reached out to be on the show Tough as Nails that I said, oh, I, I guess I need to sit down and start writing about myself because now there could be a chance that I'll be on national television explaining my story. So let's knock out two birds with one stone and get all the thoughts down and, and actually do a book out of it. I hired a ghostwriter and I started interviewing with that person and just talking about my life. They asked me a whole bunch of questions and probably did hours, hours upon hours of interviews. Once I found out I was going to do the show, I was gone for, this was in 2020, I was gone for an extended period of time. When I came back, we had done all the interviews, but nothing transpired out of that. So I called up a friend of mine and I said, hey, uh, I know you write and I know you do military books. Can you do a memoir? Can you ghostwrite? He was like, absolutely. And his name's Lance Thompson. And he's written a He's written books and screenplays and all that. So we sat down in one month and we cranked out a manuscript for the book. That's great. So what makes you tough as nails, huh? What makes me tough as nails? I don't quit. <laughs> yeah. I keep going and I try to find a way. I, I don't saying, I don't want to say saying no to me is the end, but I, I'm going to find a way to make it work, whether it's leading people down something, whether it's doing a manuscript in the beginning shopped it around a little bit. Some people said no. And then I found the right person who said that they'll help me independently publish it. And that's what we did. And it's been doing good. I've received a lot of good reviews and it's doing well. And I got to do a lot of the marketing on my own, but that's okay. So that is great. No, and being on the show tough as nails <laughs> also. I'd imagine. So is it your mindset? Like, do you subscribe to something each and every day, like practice morning rituals? Like I get up at 5am, I do an incantation, meditation, I work out and then take a cold shower. What gives you that like tough as nails mindset? Or what do you stay tuned with every day to do to create that mindset for yourself? That's very focused. I like that incantation and all that. I, I like that a lot. That's pretty cool. I do not. I have two kids under the age of 10. And they suck the life force out of me, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I wake up in the morning, I do put everything on a calendar, and I kind of look at what I have to do the night before, and I just say, okay, this is going to be a long day. Let's, let's be focused. Let's be deliberate in what we do. You know, you got two kids that you got to get up in the morning, get ready to go. My daughter is incredibly moody in the morning, so that could go one of 10 different ways, and my son <laughs> is pretty easy. I mentally, the night before, say, okay, we're just going to go do it. You're feeling good. Let's go. And 
I'll be honest with you, like today, I woke up knowing that we were going to do this, but my day has been a struggle today, quite frankly. I'll, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> no, be honest. And, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll be incredibly honest. I had one client in the morning that uh, passed out on me. Then I have major construction in our backyard, and the people were supposed to come build something, and they said they were unable to do that. So major disappointment this morning. And I will tell you, I sat quietly for about 20 minutes, and I was like, wow, well, I'm, I'm very disappointed. And I was a little in my feelings this morning about everything. And then finally, I was like, okay, you're done. Let's figure out how we're going to salvage this day and make it work and get everything done that we need to get done. So I thought about that and I said, okay, well, the guys came to do some work, couldn't, got on the phone. I'm going to make the space a little bit more open for them. And how am I going to do that? I got to do a couple of phone calls after we're done with this podcast and we'll get it moving again. My client this morning, we had a discussion about eating before working out because she's a high risk person. So she's a high risk client. And she's good to go. You know, it could have been a lot worse. I recognized it and I kind of eased her into her, you know, transition. And then the rest of the day, it's going to go better. So I'll end the day pretty good. That is great. And I can empathize with you. I have a nine-year-old and uh, my fiance has two uh, two 12-year-olds. So I can totally empathize with you. They add a lot of uh, excitement <laughs> to the mix. They do. <laughs> They definitely do. Now, you're also a fitness professional and certified trainer. How has fitness been intertwined with your military career? Yeah, there's never a day that's not intertwined. I mean, from day one, you start officer candidate school or you start boot camp. The first thing you're doing that you'll probably remember other than being yelled at is that you're doing a lot of running. So you have to be fit. I mean, fitness really goes into other aspects of your life. You're mentally, emotionally, how you deal with things. If you don't run good that day, how do you deal with that emotionally? If your workout was not as good, you can't be 100% all the time. How does that work? So for me, working out, there's so many facets for it. It helps me center myself. It helps me get out of any frustration. It helps me think. I mean, there's times, you know, when you work out to the point of exhaustion and you're just laying there, it allows you to just think about other aspects of your life and think life choices. And you just have to work with that in your head. And that, it just helps me to center everything. You know, and I've seen that as a fitness professional, that also, it's also able to help people, especially who are dealing with mental health issues. I mean, one of my first clients about five years ago, he was a young kid, 13 years old, homeschooled, had anxiety issues. And we started doing martial arts. And after about a year, I mean, the progression on this kid. First of all, he dropped about 30 pounds. And then he, you know, he blossomed into this young man who he started playing basketball, be on the basketball team. He started going to school, you know, outside of homeschool into a brick and mortar school. I've seen firsthand what it could do to people. Even my client this morning, who's more high risk, much older, but on the much heavier side, after about the first two weeks of working out, with her, you could see just the whole attitude change, happiness, able to deal with things, looking forward to the next ses session. And I mean, we, we work out only 15 minutes at a time. So it's great. I love that. I love to be able to help people work out physically, 
help them with every other aspect of their life because physical fitness to me is so important and I see the great benefits it has for people. You speak a lot of truth there. I'm also a fitness professional and um, personal trainer myself, so I can totally empathize with where you're coming from. Now, you're also a motivational speaker. What inspired you to want to become a motivational speaker? What inspired me is that I didn't realize how much sharing my story and the impact it would have on people and how much my story resonates with so many people, just different aspects. You know, the part maybe growing up as a kid and being made fun of a lot of people like, well, you know, we say, oh, I was bullied. You know, nowadays we say bullying. But back in the days, that was just survival, right? Kids are are kids. Kids are mean. Yes. Kids are in groups and packs. It's like Lord of the Flies on the playground. You're just surviving. (laughs) So to talk about that part of my life resonates with people. To talk about the military aspect as a black woman Being a pilot in a very male-dominated field, that resonates with a lot of women who, if they're in security forces, if they do firefighting, if they're a police officer, that resonates. How do you overcome that? I mean, it's not great all the time, but as women doing these things, we have passions about it. And when I talk about it, yeah, there's bad sides to it, but this is how I overcame it. So hopefully the tools that I use can help you as well. So to talk about those things and talk about the fact that at seven years old, to me, I said, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut. And everyone's like, you knew that at seven? How? How did you do that? I said, well, I built a framework. I didn't know every nuance, but I knew this was the path. So I just built a a quick path to get to the destination. As I got older, I started adding more pieces to that path. And here I am. And at 50, retiring at 40, you know, my late 40s, doing a reality show and all that, I didn't know where I was going to end up. I didn't become an astronaut, but man, I got pretty damn close. And there's still time left in my life to maybe get on a, if Elon Musk is listening, you know, SpaceX, (laughs) I'm in pretty good shape. Yes. I'm pretty, pretty smart, you know? Definitely smart. Work as the crew. So (laughs) you never know. You never know. <laughs> you never know what's next for you. Never know what's next. You were awarded an honorary doctorate degree in engineering from your alma mater university in New Haven. What was it like receiving that recognition? I was incredibly flattered and honored when I received the letter. Man, I was blown away and can't thank the university enough. Um, university of New Haven, small private school. I picked it because it was a small private school and it had a competitive engineering program and I'm glad they recognize some of the things that I've done and and kind of done for the university. So thank you. I mean, it made me feel great. My husband's a little mad, though, because he's <laughs> working on his uh, doctorate. And he's like, really? You're going to get this first over me? I said, that's honorary. <laughs> Congratulations. So we, we're a little competitive in the house. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's great. That's great. Do you have any advice for young women who maybe want to follow on your path or in a sense are just up against maybe more than joining the military? any advice, anyone who wants to join the military, join the military. My strong opinion is that I think everyone should serve a couple of years in the military just to understand, you know, what it is to fight for this country. And as much as maybe nowadays certain people don't like this country or like what we do, we're still one of the best games in town. I mean, there are people coming from other countries to come here. You can't take that away. We have some We live in a country where if you want to do it and you put in the work and the sweat and the tears and the blood and all that, you will most likely succeed at what you want to do, right? You can't do that in other countries. Some places women are not even allowed to read. So 
for those women who want to go into a field that may be dominated by men or something that is very niche, go and do it. What's stopping you? Is it you that's stopping you? Then get out of your own way and work as hard as you can and figure out ways and find mentors out there that can help get you to those goals. Because if you don't, as I get older now, you know, being almost 51, I'm seeing some of my friends who have regretted not pursuing their dreams or their passions. And they might be happy, but there's still that question in their head, what if? Why even leave that what if lingering? Just go do it. Just try. And try again. And find those people and, and do it. What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that happened to me? I, I want to be an astronaut. What's the worst that happened? I retired as a colonel and did tough as nails and I'm a trainer and I inspire people. <laughs> oh man, if that's bad, I'll take it. Yeah. I always live by the thing, never give yourself the opportunity to ask what if. So I, I agree with everything you just said. Now, with all that you've accomplished, what legacy do you want to leave behind? So the legacy for my kids or just other people that I want to leave behind is that, so uh, correct me if I'm wrong, to be born in this world you're winning the lottery to begin with. You're winning the genetic lottery. To be born in the United States, you're winning that golden ticket for the genetic lottery. Don't waste it. Do everything that you can to make this life as beneficial for you and others. Give back to other people. I mean, we have this opportunity. There's so many things you could do with it. Not only get your goals, but also help inspire other people to get their goals as well to become innovative, to design things. Do not take that for granted. You won the lottery by being born in this country here. Don't take it for granted. You can't. I'll be really mad if you do. Oh, so poignantly said. So where can people learn more about you? Are you on social media? I am. I'm on Instagram. That's like my home station. So I'm Dragon Lady 788 788 is my pilot number. I'm also on... Facebook as Meryl Tengestall. I'm on LinkedIn, Meryl Tengestall. I'm on TikTok, Meryl Tengestall. If you want to see me <laughs> dance, I'm a terrible dancer, but I do get my dance on sometimes and I use that as motiva oh, <laughs> motivation. Great. I'm not on Twitter. I know I'm being pressured to. Since Elon Musk owns 9.8% stake, I'll get on there. I also have a YouTube channel, but I, I just post stuff, uh, other podcast stuff that I have on there. Oh, that is great. Well, listen, thank you so much. It was an honor to have you on the show today. Congratulations on all your success. Well, thank you very much. And the last thing, if you want to reach out to me, MerylTengestall.com, you can send me a text message or DM me. Will do. Thank you again. All right. Thank you. Well, that is all the time we have today. I want to give a big thank you to Meryl Tangestall for joining us on the show today and taking the time to share her story. Make sure you're subscribed to Stories of Strength, and if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jay Cardiello, and this has been Stories of Strength, personal and inspirational tales of redefined strength, presented by MuscleTech. <laughs>